Dave was leading in prayer for one of our missionaries, and we're about to hear from one of them in just just a moment. Uh, I want to remind you, those of you who are not familiar with what Reform University Fellowship is, R-U-F, that is the campus ministry of the denomination of which we are a part, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Uh, What that means is that all of those campus ministers within RUF have been seminary trained and ordained under the oversight, members of a local presbytery. So Gavin, way, way out there in the western, eastern, eastern frontier of of Cookville, we should have picked you up yesterday. Anyway, then you'd have to walk back. But... um, uh, he's out there in Cookville at Tennessee Tech, uh, part of the, the Nashville Presbytery. Been here at least like once or twice before, I know. And it's so good to have Come on up here. We're so good to have you again. What a relief it was to know that uh, I could have focused in on that trip and my team and what we were doing uh, there at Cherokee and now know that you can lead us in the Word here this morning. So, Gavin, thank you. Well, it's so good to be with you guys again. I've talked to a few people this morning, and they're like, I don't remember you being here before, but I preached the Sunday after Christmas uh, in last year, and so that's always a kind of a travel day, a travel Sunday. So it's good to be with you guys, and hopefully uh, to meet some of you I haven't met before. Um, just let me, just as, as uh, Richard was just saying, I am the campus minister at RUF at Tennessee Tech. I'm uh, your representative uh, at Tennessee Tech on this university. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for praying for our ministry and for supporting our ministry. Uh, it, it's we're um, and I'm delighted for y'all as well that y'all are bringing RUF uh, here to, to Austin P. I think that's wonderful. I haven't had the p- privilege to meet Austin Royal yet, but I look forward to doing that soon. Um, but you know, RUF changed my life as a college student at University of Tennessee Martin, and uh, it was because people whose names I don't know and will never know. People prayed for and gave and supported this ministry at UT Martin, RUF, and, and that changed my life. And so I'm so, so grateful for that. And you all get to be a part of that as well, both at Tennessee Tech, um, here at Austin P, other RUF ministries you support in our presbytery. And so thank you very much. And I just want to ask um, for one special prayer request, I guess. Uh, this week, uh, all there's about 140 RUF campus ministers in the United States, and this week all 140 of us are going to be gathering in Atlanta for some training. And so just be in prayer for all of us as we're getting together. It's, a, it's an encouraging time uh, to be with other guys who are kind of in the trenches, but it's also a time of, of great reflection and teaching and encouragement. So uh, be praying for, uh, please be praying for your RUF campus ministers this week. Uh, so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 11. And in this psalm, David has reason to panic. Uh, things are not going well for him. Personally, things are not going well in the nation uh, people are even telling him to flee. David, it's time to go. It's time to get out of Dodge, to get out of harm's way. But David finds comfort and hope, and he shows us where it comes from. So this morning we're going to read Psalm 11. To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They had fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. 
He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again, ask him for his help this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you um, as people who are needy. We need, uh, we need grace. Uh, we need a Savior in the Lord Jesus. We need to hear from you this morning, O oh Lord. Uh, there are so many voices that are competing for our attention, uh, voices in our culture, uh, voices even in our own heart, perhaps, that are, uh, that are yelling and screaming for our attention. But Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to hear only your voice, that we would hear you speak to us from your word as your people. Lord, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray that we would see him this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that I love the book of Psalms is because, uh, it's because they give words to us when we don't know what to say. Uh, I spent some time in the Psalms this past semester with my students at Tennessee Tech and was able to show them through a variety of different Psalms how they all, sort of, they all can, can be related to different emotions. Okay? And so whatever you may be feeling, whether it's anger or doubt or depression or joy or anxiety or jealousy or thanksgiving or fear or sadness, there's, there's a psalm for that. Okay? You remember the old phone commercial, there's an app for that? Um, well, there's a psalm for that. Whatever you're feeling, whatever circumstances you're in, there's a psalm for that. There's a psalm that puts words to the, the, the feelings, those feelings that you have, even when you don't know what to say yourself. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of times this summer that I have not known what to say. That This has been a very... Uh, it's been a very troubling summer. If you look at the headlines this summer, it's just been very easy to feel anxious. It's been easy to feel afraid, um, as we have seen headlines of, of violence and death and injustice and tragedy. Um, and just as the tone of our national conversation has often been angry and bitter, um, it's just been a, it's been a hard summer. It's been a very ugly and heartbreaking summer. Um, and it's hard to know what to say in response to that, but thankfully... We have God's Word. Thankfully, we have the book of Psalms that often uh, that give us words to say. It's a good place for us to start. And so here in Psalm 11, we see David in a moment of panic, a moment of crisis, right? His life seems to be in danger. It looks like the very foundations of goodness, the very foundations of order in his country, in Israel, are, are, are being tried and, and could be destroyed, right? People are telling him, but perhaps friends or advisors or whatever are telling him, David... It's time to flee. It's time to go. And we see, uh, in the midst of all of this, though, David gives us a heavenly vision. He gives us a picture of the throne in heaven and the one who is seated on it. And we see here, as crisis is followed by a picture of hope, a picture of, of comfort for God's people. Because here's the thing. God does not want us to be afraid. Have you ever really thought about that? God doesn't want you to be afraid. He doesn't want us to be afraid. That's a very refreshing, I think it's so refreshing considering the fearful times in which we live. I, you know, politicians sometimes want us to be afraid so that we'll vote for them. Um, news media and people like that, they want us to be afraid so we'll tune in. Uh, but, but God does not want us to be afraid. He does not want you to be afraid. And we know this because of how frequently God says in the Bible, do not fear, do not be afraid. It's one of the most frequent commands that we see. You know, one time I decided I was going to sit down with the book of Psalms and, and go through just every time fear was mentioned, I was just going to write down the verse. Um, and I gave up about halfway through just because it was, <laughs> I had pages and pages of stuff. I was like, okay, I, I get the point. 
Um, fear, fear is talked about a lot in here, and, and God is constantly um, talking to us about our fear in the Bible. He, he's constantly um, telling people what, that he is meeting with not to fear, not to be afraid. Um, and he doesn't want us to, be, to fear, so he gives us so many promises. He gives us so much assurance. He gives us so much in the, to fight fear in our lives in his word. He even tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear. And we know that he loves us with a perfect love. But that's where we continually drift. We continually drift back towards panic, towards anxiety, towards fear. Um, the Bible is constantly trying to pull us back from that, right? Trying to shake us out of that. Do not fear. Take courage. Take heart. Uh, the Bible continually reminds us. And that's what we're after here in Psalm 11 this morning. We're looking for something to, sort of, to help shake us out of our fear. And David gives us something. He, he directs our eyes towards the throne in heaven. And so two points this morning, a momentary crisis and a majestic comfort. First, a momentary crisis. You know, we don't really know the, the specific crisis that David is referring to in this passage. We don't really know exactly what he is dealing with. There are several possibilities to choose from in his life. Uh, we know that at one point in David's life, uh, King Saul, who was his direct predecessor, King Saul wanted David to be killed. King Saul wanted David dead uh, and, and pursued him and tried to kill him. We know that um, there were other nations, as David was king, other nations wanted to see him dead. We know that his own son Absalom wanted to overthrow David and to take the throne, uh, that Absalom was pursuing David and to pursuing to take his life. And there's a number of times throughout his life where his life is in danger. He's fearing for his life. And so the psalm doesn't tell us specifically which one this is referring to. But what do we know? Well, we know that there's a crisis. We know that David's life is in danger. Uh, things were bad enough that his advisors or friends are telling him to leave. Uh, but, even, but even that would not have guaranteed his safety, if you noticed in the passage, right? Um, he says in verse 1 that he's being told to flee like a bird to your mountain. Um, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And so the wicked are bending their bows. They're, they're waiting to shoot. As the, the picture here is of David fleeing like a bird and a hunter putting, a, putting bow to string and drawing back, that even as he flees, he is still in grave danger. So this describes some sort of personal crisis, that David has enemies, that they want him dead, they want to see him destroyed. And so my question for you this morning is, what about you? Is What is the crisis that, that you've brought in here this morning with you? Um, I doubt that yours and mine are going to be exactly what David is here. I doubt that there are people who are um, wanting to kill you. I hope, not, I hope there are people not wanting to kill you. Um, but... There are other crises that we experience, that we, that we may have brought with us this morning. Um, perhaps you know what it's like to feel under attack. Perhaps at your work, perhaps at school, perhaps in your neighborhood, you know what it's like to, to be hated, to feel unwanted, that, that there's people in your life that you feel would take any opportunity to make you look bad, any opportunity to rub failure in your face. They're perhaps even trying to ruin your reputation, trying to attack your credibility to create a hostile environment for you at work or uh, in other spheres of life. Or perhaps for you this morning, uh, the crisis that you have brought with you this morning is one uh, connected to illness or sickness or physical pain. Perhaps you have a chronic condition that, that every day you live with and struggle with. Uh, perhaps you uh, have other health issues, health problems, and at times it feels like your own body has turned against you. Uh, and, and it feels, it's, it's something that weighs on your heart and mind as you think about it, as you worry about it. Perhaps yours is a financial crisis. Perhaps you are 
you feel as if you're drowning in student loans or you're drowning in credit card debt or you're, you've, you've, put, you've been in a financial situation in a bind and you don't see any way out. You feel as if you're suffocating. Or perhaps you're in a panic because you, you've been wrestling with depression. You've been wrestling with anxiety. You've been wrestling with body image issues. You've been wrestling with pornography. And these things in life, they, they feel like they're going to swallow you up. Perhaps that's the crisis that you're wrestling with this morning. And David is speaking here of a personal crisis, and we, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to feel, uh, to feel that way. You've been there, or you're, perhaps you're there right now. But David doesn't just speak of a personal crisis here. He speaks of whatever this crisis is. It also has, he speaks of it on a national level as well. Uh, the very nation is in turmoil, and it seems to be teetering on the edge of destruction. Look at what David writes in verse 3. He says, If the very foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Um, Eugene Peterson translates this in his, in his copy of the Bible, The Message. He translates this as, The bottoms dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. Um, and sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it, right? The bottom has dropped out of the country. Maybe you felt that way um, sometime this year, sometime this summer. In other words, what he's saying here is, is the very principles, the, very, the, the, the morals that we feel as our, that our nation was founded on feel like they're going to be destroyed, right? And if that happens, what will be left? What will, where will our security be then if that happens? And certainly we can feel that, I think, in our nation today. Our country seems to be just in a constant state of unrest. Um, you know, as uh, Pastor uh, Richard mentioned just a moment ago, that here we are on the Sunday between the RNC and the DNC. And so perhaps last week you were very anxious, or perhaps this week you're going to be very anxious, or maybe you're very anxious during both weeks uh, of this, of this uh, season of, of time. Um, it feels just as if there's very few people willing to extend grace to people who, with whom they disagree. Um, the, the tone of our national conversation has been one that's been very sharp, uh, very contentious, um, at times very ugly, very angry, as just other issues we've, we've as a nation, have wrestled with and, and debated throughout this year and throughout this summer. Sometimes it seems as if there's just not a single thing about which our country is unified. Um, and that can feel, that, we can feel that, can't we? We feel that, in the, we feel it in the weather, we feel it in the air, right? Um, and as a Christian, it can be really tough. It can be it can feel sometimes that we live in a culture that, at the least, it's, it's a culture that doesn't understand us at the most. It's a culture that can feel hostile to us. Uh, and at the end of the day, the thing I think many of us come back to is this. What kind, of, what kind of country are we leaving for our children? What kind of country are we leaving for our grandchildren? Where is all of this heading? It can make us feel very helpless and hopeless and fearful. And that's how it felt for David, too. The foundations, the very foundations are being shaken he feels like. That's how it can often feel for us. But no matter how dark things get, no matter how bad things look, whether through a personal crisis or a national crisis, it doesn't linger forever. It's good as Christians to think in the, in the perspective of eternity, uh, this doesn't last very long. And thankfully the psalm doesn't end here in verse 3. It doesn't end with things in, in turmoil. It doesn't end with things in chaos, with things in crisis. David pr- pr- proceeds to give us a glorious picture of a majestic comfort. That's our second point, a majestic comfort that David shows to us here in Psalm 11. Uh, Pictures can have a very powerful effect on us, can't they? I was watching, recently I was watching the the movie Castaway uh, with Tom Hanks, I think from the the late 90s or somewhere in that era. And um, you remember that movie, Tom Hanks, he works for FedEx, he's he's in a plane crash, he's the only survivor, he ends up stranded on this desert island. And he has some some of the items that 
belonged, you know, that were in some of the packages. He's able to find a few things to kind of help him. Uh, but early on in his stay in the, in the, on the island, he's obviously very depressed. He's, he's even contemplating suicide. He's very upset and very frightened, very scared. And there's this great scene early in that, that, in that, around that time of the movie where he's in a cave, he's trying to go to sleep, and he has this pocket watch. And on the inside of the pocket watch is a picture of the woman that he loves, right? A picture of Helen Hunt, uh, who was the woman he was going to get engaged to, going to marry. And he's laying there in the dark in this cave, and he clicks on his, he found a flashlight in one of the packages. He clicks on the flashlight, and he looks at her picture, and he clicks the flashlight off. And he clicks the flashlight back on and looks at her picture. And it's almost as if, you know, in the, in the darkness there, you know, the, as the fear, as the anxiety creeps into his heart, you know, he clicks the flashlight back on to look at this picture, uh, something that gives him hope, something that encourages him, something that calms him and assures him, uh, something that, that, that um, gives him rest. And David is doing that same thing for us here, except on a much grander scale. He's describing this crisis, and now he, he's, he gives us this majestic picture, this heavenly vision of the Lord's throne in heaven. And it's meant to be a comfort for us. It's meant to calm us. It's meant to reassure us. It's meant to ease our worries and our fears. So let's take a look at this picture that David is showing us. Look at verse 4. What do we see? It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord is on his throne. That's what he sees. He sees a throne. It's not an earthly throne. It's a heavenly throne. And the one who's seated on it is the Lord himself. And so what we're seeing here is that, that the king is in residence. That the king is not fleeing. That while the foundations of earthly kingdoms may shake and may be destroyed, the foundations of this kingdom cannot be moved. This throne cannot be shaken. And what, God, what David is doing here is reminding us that the Lord is on his throne. That, that regardless of how things may appear to us, regardless of how things may fear to us in moments of panic, in moments of crisis and fear, that the Lord is on the seat of authority. The Lord is on the seat of power. He is in control. You know, and I think the reason that we don't like crisis in our lives is because it, it reminds us uh, very acutely that we are not in control. The, that we want to believe desperately that we are in control of our lives, of our destinies, of everything. Uh, and the Bible says you're not, and then crisis comes into your life and it reminds us of that. It shows us that sometimes in very, in very real ways, in very tangible ways. It reminds us of, that we're not in control. And Psalm 11 here is saying, look, the goal in your crisis is not for you to, to get back that sense of control. The goal is for you to see that you were never in control, that the, that, that, that the Lord himself is in control, that you never had control anyway, that you just thought you did. And Psalm 11 points us then to the one who is in control, to the one who has always been in control, to the one who always will be in control. And this is how the Bible speaks of Jesus. This is how the New Testament speaks of Jesus, particularly the book of Revelation. And as New Testament Christians, we know that Jesus is the one who is sitting on the throne. And in our quotes for reflection this morning, uh, I put a couple quotes about Jesus and his, and his kingship, and Jesus as our king. And uh, the, quote, the wonderful quote from Abraham Kuyper that was already read a few moments ago, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our, of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That he looks at every square inch, every molecule that in existence and says, this is mine. That I'm, I'm in control of, of all of this. I have authority over all of this. And then our own Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 26, 
We talk about Jesus being a prophet, priest, and king for us. What does it mean when we say Jesus is our king? What does that mean when the Bible says that? How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus is the king. He's the one on the throne. He's sovereign over every square inch, ruling and defending his people, defeating all of his and all of our enemies. That's what King Jesus is doing. And maybe this picture of a king, maybe this language of a king, isn't, maybe, maybe that's not very comforting to you. Because sometimes we can think about a king as being someone who's very distant, right? Someone who's very removed from his people. Someone who's very removed from the needs and concerns of those who are under him. But brothers and sisters, that is not King Jesus. He understands you, okay? King Jesus uh, was born in a manger, right? He put on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, in his humanity, he experienced everything that we experience. Hebrew two, Hebrews 2, chapter 2, tells us that Jesus was, had to be like us in every respect so, he would, so, he would, so that we would know he is a merciful and faithful high priest for us. That he had to be tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin in order for him to help us in our temptations. Jesus knew what it was like to experience loss. He, he, knows. he knows what it's like to experience loss. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and abandoned. He knows what it was like to be distressed and to be weary. Jesus gets you. Jesus understands you. He knows. He knows you. You know, there's this great scene um, in the third Lord of the Rings book, uh, The Return of the King. It's in the book, not the movie. Um, there's this great scene in which there's all these wounded warriors, right? And they're in this infirmary in uh, Minas Tirith. I never know how to pronounce the Lord of the Rings uh, names and stuff, but Minas Tirith, maybe? Uh, and the wounded people are there, and they're, they're growing sicker because of the poison that was on the enemy's weapon, on the enemy's weapons, okay? And so Aragorn, who, you know, is kind of the hero of the story in a way, he's the rightful king, he's the returning king, um, but he hasn't taken the throne yet. Um, and he comes into the infirmary, and he begins to tend to these, wick, these uh, sick and wounded people. And he begins to lay hands on these people, and they are healed. And there's this old nurse who's in the room, and she remembers an old legend of Gondor which says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And so the rumors begin to fly and cir circulate throughout the city that the king of Gondor walks again, bringing hands, bringing healing in his hands. And the same is true for King Jesus. King Jesus is not removed from his people. King Jesus is not distant from your needs and from, and from uh, what, what's going on in our lives and our concerns. Um, he walks among us. He, he has the hands of a healer. And that's what, that's what we need right now. That's what our nation needs. That's what you and I need. We need the hands of the healer, and King Jesus is the only one who can do it. So it's no wonder that David starts here. He starts at the throne. He starts by telling us to look at our king, who is ruling over everything, who has dominion over every square inch, that every atom is under his control. He's telling us, don't be afraid. The king is on the throne. And the king is, when, as the king is seated on his throne, he's not fleeing. His kingdom is not shaken. And what's he, what's he doing on the throne? Well, one of the things that we see here in verses 5 and 6 is that the king is judging the wicked. Um, look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Um, 
And as we read just a moment ago from our catechism, that, that he is ruling and defending us. He is restraining and defeating and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what we see here. Now, who are the wicked? We see this term a lot in the Psalms. Who are the wicked? The wicked are those uh, who love and live for themselves. The wicked are those who don't see a need for God, don't see a need for God's mercy in their lives. They don't care. They don't care about God. They don't care what he says. Uh, they don't care what he does. And I want to be very clear here. David is not telling us to gloat in. David is not telling us to make light of divine judgment or death of the wicked. Okay, It's not what he's telling us here. He's so how can this hard truth then, how this truth of God's divine judgment, how can that be a comfort to us? Well, simply in this way. In, these, in those moments that I'm sure we've all had, those moments where you're hearing a news story, those moments where you're seeing something, you, you hear about some injustice in the world, you hear about uh, some, some moment of, of terrorism, you hear about some, uh, a, a moment of violence, you hear about abuse, you hear about uh, children or people who are um, helpless and defenseless, being abused, being taken advantage of, sometimes it fills you, you know, with righteous anger, right? It, 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 it makes you, it gets you upset. And you're like, but you also feel totally powerless. What can I do? What can I do about this? What can I do about this situation? What, about, what can I do about this rampant wickedness that seems to run in our world, in our country? And in that moment, the thing we can do is to remember that the king is sitting on the throne, right? That, that, that he is holy, he is just, and he is powerful. And that every evil act, every act of violence, every act of, of oppression, every act of injustice, every sin in this world is going to be accounted for by this righteous king and judge. This is a reminder in Psalm 11 that evil does not win, that the wicked do not get off scot-free, that when evil and justice are out of our control, they're never outside of God's control that he is holy, he is just, he will do the right thing. It's a, it's a good reminder for us. And there's a final thing we see in this passage. David gives us comfort in the final verse here, verse 7. He says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. One day, the upright, the righteous, will stand before his throne. They will stand before the king. They will see his face. They will behold his face. Now, who are the righteous? How do, I, how do I get to be a part of that group? How do I get in on that? Um, the righteous here is not referring to perfect people. We know that Jesus was the only perfect person. But the righteous, is not talking about, the righteous here is not talking about people who, who have all their ducks in a row, who have their act together. It's referring to those who, who see their sin, who see their brokenness, who see their need for mercy, who see their need for a Savior, their need for the Lord Jesus. The righteous are those who love God and love His Word and desire to obey Him. The righteous are those who love Jesus and rest in him and follow him. So the psalm, the psalm doesn't promise us that, that every crisis in your life is going to be perfectly resolved, that everything's going to work out just the way you want it to. That's not the promise we have here. It doesn't promise us that, everything's, that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. But what we have here is that no matter what happens through the crises of your life, whether personal or national, no matter what happens, that if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're resting in him, one day you will stand before the throne. You will behold his face. You will see him with your own eyes. You remember, there's a great, um, there's a great story, uh, a, a moment in, in Exodus 33 and 34, right? Moses is up on the on Mount Sinai. He's getting the Ten Commandments, and he's talking to God, and he's saying, "Hey, um, he's saying, I would love to see, I want to see your glory." Um, he says, "I want to see your glory." And you remember what God says? God says to him, "Well, you can't see my face." 
because no man can see my face and live. And this is not a threat, okay? God's not trying to be intimidating. He's not trying to be frightening and macho here, okay? This is just, he's just being, he's being accurate, okay? Look, the sight of my face would be too good for you. It would be too beautiful. It would be too perfect. You, you, will, you could not see the sight and live. A simple man like Moses, a simple person like you or me, can't see this and live. It's too good. But he says, here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover it with my hand. And I'll pass by, and I'll let you see the backside of my glory, just like a fraction of it, just a sliver of it. I'll let you see a little bit. And, he, and that's what he does, right? And we remember that. It's a beautiful scene. And in the next chapter, in Exodus 34, Moses comes down from the mountain, from this meeting with God, from having seen sort of the backside of God's glory. And you remember what happens? He comes down, and his face is shining. It's shining so much that the people are terrified. And they make him, they, they force Moses to wear a veil, because they are so frightened. And that is just having seen a, from having seen a fraction of God's glory. Um, and yet the Bible promises us here in Psalm 11 that regardless of how your, price, your crisis plays out, whether everything works out or whether everything goes up in smoke, that you will see his face. This sight that would have killed Moses on the spot, that one day we will see this, we will see this sight, we will see this face. The Lord Jesus gave his life and covered, us, covered our sins with his blood so that you and I could one day stand there and look up to see the face of God, to see that face. So there will be moments in life that we are tempted to despair. There will be moments when we are, are maybe are tempted to flee, when the crisis seems overwhelming and the, and the panic starts to set in. <clears throat> there will be times when it seems like the world around us is getting flipped upside down. And in those moments, what do we do? We watch the throne. Because there is a king seated there. And he is good, and he does good. He is holy and just. He will do the right thing. He is merciful and kind, and he is near to us in our sorrows. He is near to us in our pain. He calls us out of our fear, and he invites weary sinners like us to come to him and to find rest and to find uh, peace in the midst of of a restless world. His name is Jesus, and he is sitting on the throne. Amen. Let's pray.